There is perhaps nothing in all the Christian world that is as misunderstood or as easily forgotten as who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. You know, on one hand, we have the Holy Spirit, the the person of the Trinity who Jesus Christ talks about with illuminating language throughout his ministry. We have a person on one hand who is, is content to play a role that's a little bit behind the scenes, to play a role that doesn't get the press or the recognition that maybe Jesus, the Son of God, gets. We have a person who's happy to be the Robin to the Batman of Jesus Christ, the the Chewbacca to the Han Solo. But then on the other hand, we have the person of the Trinity that you and I can't afford to not know. You and I have a person of the Trinity without whom there wouldn't be a Reformation. In fact, there wouldn't be sola scripture. There wouldn't be grace alone. There wouldn't be faith alone. There wouldn't be Christ alone without him. There wouldn't be knowing God without the Holy Spirit. There wouldn't be knowing Jesus. There wouldn't be knowing yourself without the Holy Spirit. There would only be questions. There would only be questions I'm sure many of you are asking yourselves. Is there a God? And if there's a God, what's he like? Is he someone who likes me, someone who who blesses me, or someone who curses me and makes me pay for things that I've done in my life? There'd be questions about your role in this life. What's my purpose? Why should I get out of bed in the morning? How am I to relate to people in my life? How am I to care for my body? How am I to spend my time? How am I to spend my money? And how about suffering and trials and, and things that just stink? You know, are these purposeful? Is, is God giving these to me? Is he sending this suffering into my life to, to pay me back for some wrong I did by him? Is there any purpose to this? Is there any relief from this? Without the Holy Spirit, there's only questions. There's only questions or what we've been calling throughout our sermon series, potholes, things in life that just throw you off your path. Potholes, things in life that throw you off your path and even worse, create a gap between you and your God. But here's the thing those questions all have in common. They all have an answer. And the Holy Spirit answers all of them. It's the Holy Spirit who can and who does help you know your God better than you know your spouse or your best friend. It's the Holy Spirit who does and who can give you peace that transcends all understanding in times of suffering. It's the Holy Spirit who answers your why, who tells you about your purpose, who tells you and gives you wisdom about the meaning that you have in this life. It's the Holy Spirit who does and can always remind you of the truth that Christ moved your sins away from you. There is no shame. There is no guilt in this life. That's who the Holy Spirit is, and that's why we need to know him. So here's how we're going to celebrate the Reformation starting today. We're going to take a little crash course on the Holy Spirit, and we're going to answer three questions about him. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do And how does he do it? As I mentioned before, we're going to answer those questions looking at John's gospel. John chapter 14, 
15 and 16. And here we're going to look at Jesus' words to his disciples. We're going to look at Jesus' words to his disciples on the eve of Good Friday, on the eve of him going to the cross for us. So if you would, please open up to John chapter 14. We're going to start reading at verse 11 of chapter 14 as we answer this question first. Who is the Holy Spirit? Jesus Christ talking to his disciples says this, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. This is the gospel of our Lord. As you read the Bible, one thing will become abundantly clear from page one. There is a God. There is one God. I am the Lord your God. There is no other God besides me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's the Old Testament. And look at Jesus' words here. He talks about one God. And yet, as you read through scripture, what you're going to read is that this God appears as three different people. He appears as God the Father. He appears as God the Son, and he appears as God the Holy Spirit. And yet, though there are three people, don't get it confused, there's still only one God. God, the Father, is God. Jesus Christ is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But as Jesus pointed out, they're not all the same. God is not Jesus. And God the Father, that is, is not Jesus. And Jesus Christ is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. But they all are God. We call this the doctrine of the Trinity. We call this teaching, the teaching of the fact that we have a triune God. Three people, yet one God. And if this doesn't fit neatly into your three-pound brain, don't be surprised because it, it won't, right? It's who God is. It's God's revelation to us, and it's something we accept by faith. But here's what I want you to take away today. If you just know one thing about this, know this. The Holy Spirit is one of the persons, one of the people of the Trinity. And that means when we answer that question, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, it might be best answered in this way. The Holy Spirit is not just a force. He's not just a spirit or wind or a whisper or a flame of fire. The Holy Spirit is a person who is God. That's who the Holy Spirit is. And as you think about the Holy Spirit and you think about who he is and the fact that he's a person, that also means that, well, he has a personality. 
And that helps us know him. That helps us know the Holy Spirit because you know people, right? And you know people with personalities. So what's the personality of the Holy Spirit? Well, here in John's gospel, in verse 16, Jesus tells you. He describes him as an advocate to help you. Now, maybe if you were following along in your Bibles or on your phone, what you read is maybe not the word advocate. Maybe you saw in the ESV translation that, well, he's called a helper. Or in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the three most popular English translations, he's called the counselor. So what is the Holy Spirit like? Why is there all these different words and translations? Should I be concerned about that? Well, it's actually really an amazing thing. The word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit is he calls him his parakletos. And that word, that word in Greek is, is so wonderful. And the, in fact, the personality of the Holy Spirit is, is so beautifully complex that it's really hard to capture. All of these words are really accurate and great translations. The Holy Spirit is that. He is the advocate. He is someone to, to go to bat for you, someone who advocates for Jesus Christ. But he's also comforting. Scripture calls him someone who's a leader, someone who's a guide, someone who's a counselor. That's who the Holy Spirit is. And if you read Scripture, you'll also read that, well, like your ex-girlfriend or your ex-boyfriend, the Holy Spirit is someone you can reject, someone you can block, their friend requests or their calls. You can do that to him. But the overwhelming descriptors of who the Holy Spirit is, well, they describe him as someone that, that is like your best friend, someone that could be your best friend. Now, I'm thankful. In my life, I have been blessed with many awesome Christian friends. But I want to tell you about one. His name's Josh, and he's the gentleman pictured on the right in that picture. And, and, he, and he's someone who lived with me for a long time. In fact, we went to school together for 12 years, Josh and I, and we, we were roommates for nine of those years. And I'm a little bit biased, but I think Josh's picture should be next to the definition of best friend in the dictionary. Why? Well, I knew Josh, and the reality of our friendship is that Josh knew me maybe better than I knew myself. You know, it didn't matter what the situation was. Josh was always optimistic. Josh was someone who, when I was stressing out, when I was worried about this or that, he was somebody who would make me feel at peace. He was somebody who would always remind me that instead of worrying Matt, you should pray about this. And hey, let's pray before the start of the school year. We'd go on road trips together. And before he started the engine, he'd say, hey man, let's pray about this. He was someone that was always making me feel at peace. He was someone who always gave good advice. When I was thinking about if I should join this extracurricular activity or if I should ask this girl, Josh had the answers. And it always made sense. Josh was wise. There was a time when I was a sophomore in college, I got credit back from the college because I overpaid on my tuition. I got $300. And I thought, this is awesome. And I was ready to go on Amazon and click order on a sweet set of bagpipes that I always wanted. Don't, don't ask me why. I went through a little bit of a phase. And Josh is the one who said, hey, 
before you make that debt-inducing decision, maybe you should just spend it on next year's tuition. Yeah, Josh was always there. He was there for me um, to comfort me when parents were going through their divorce. He was there for some of the greatest laughs and jokes that I still remember. But that doesn't mean that everything in my life with Josh was always smooth. Now, sometimes he made me mad. When I would come back to our room after, you know, really putting down a professor who gave me a poor, poor grade on, on an exam I probably didn't study for, Josh said to me, man, it's not cool. Don't talk about people like that. You know, I would say things to Josh, do things to Josh that maybe even hurt him. But he didn't get bitter. He wasn't one to hold grudges. But when I would apologize to him, I, I've never met someone who would qu quickly just forgive. Quickly just let you know that's cool, man. I love you and I care for you. Why am I telling you about Josh? Well, because it's not that I just want you to know my best friend. I want you to know a better friend. I want you to know the person of the Holy Spirit. I want you to know someone that you can think of as a friend, your best friend, but someone who's even better. Maybe, maybe your coach, your best coach ever, but someone who's, who's more encouraging. Maybe your best professor or teacher ever, but someone who is even wiser. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is a person, but the Holy Spirit is God. And he's someone you can think of as your best friend, someone who, who lives with you, someone who lives in you. But what does the Holy Spirit do? That's our second question. Let's look at John's gospel. We're going to look at verse 26 and 27 of John chapter 14. So stay on the same page. I'm going to read these two verses. Then I'm going to turn the page. I'm going to read John chapter 15, verse 26. I want to invite you to uh, follow along with me. Jesus said this. He said, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Verse 26 of chapter 15. When the advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. What does the Holy Spirit do? You know, we're reading John chapter 14, 15, and 16. I want to challenge you to do this. This coming week, I want you to go home and I want you to read those chapters and, and fill in all of the parts that we're missing, Okay? And here's what you're going to find. You're going to find Jesus Christ hanging out with his best and closest friends on the night before the most significant event in the, all the world is going to take place. And you're going to see, you're going to see Jesus Christ telling them that the promise that was made in the Garden of Eden is about to be fulfilled on a hill called Golgotha. But what you're also going to see is the disciples just kind of missing it. You're going to see Jesus tell them about how I'm going to go suffer. I'm going to die. But this is okay because I'm going to rise again. And this is okay because it's for you. I'm going home to heaven to prepare a place for you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to come back. But it's all for you. 
you see Jesus telling his disciples that, but you see them missing it. Why are they missing it? Is it because Jesus is, is hiding his language in mystic sounding words that no one can understand? Or is it because the disciples are just really dumb fishermen with low IQs? It's none of those things. Jesus is clearly telling them and the disciples are clearly missing the point because they're not satisfied with what Jesus is saying. You read these chapters and you're going to see Jesus say, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And you're going to see Thomas go, I doubt it. I worked on that one for a little bit this week. You're going to see the apostle Philip look at Jesus and say, all right, that sounds good, but it's not enough. I need to see the Father. I need to see God. And what's worse, you're going to see Peter. You're going to see Peter who just the weeks prior looked at Jesus and said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living Lord. Say, whoa, no, but you're not going to die. Or at least you're not going to die alone. I'm coming with you. I got you. I'm going to die next to you. Jesus says, no, you're not. In fact, you're going to disown me three times. On the night before Jesus was going to fulfill all the scriptures, you see the disciples missing it because they weren't satisfied with what Jesus was telling them. And truth is, I don't think the disciples here are always satisfied with what Jesus is telling us either. How often aren't you like doubting Thomas? How often aren't we like Philip? We say, in Christ alone, we sing in Christ alone, but we don't take Christ alone. We need more proof. We need more understanding. We need more logic than what just Jesus tells us. We confess that it is by Christ we're saved and his grace alone, his blood for our righteousness. But how often aren't we like Peter? We lift up before God our discipleship, our following of Jesus, our integrity, our generosity, our hard work. And we say, Jesus, look, thank you for doing all the heavy lifting. Thank you for getting it started, but I got this. And we forget that Jesus Christ was lifted up for no one but you and me alone. What we do is take Christ's salvific work on the cross and we turn it into little DIY holiness projects. Forgetting that all along, this project, well, about it, God said it is finished. It's done. I've done it. And should we be any surprised that we feel just like the apostles did? We feel hearts that are troubled. We feel afraid. Why? Because if we attack our salvation in this way, thinking that, you know, hey, God's maybe 99.999%, but, you know, I got a little bit of something to do. Should we be surprised that our hearts are troubled? Should we be surprised that we live in fear like the disciples, wondering if what we did was ever good enough? Well, if you feel afraid, if you feel troubled, because that's how you are living, that's good. But know this, you're not alone. There wasn't a person who knew the troubled heart that knew the fearful heart, probably as well as Martin Luther. You see, in 1505, he was on his way to becoming a successful lawyer. He was going to school and rocking it. And all of a sudden, he decided to drop out. 
he decided to check himself into a monastery as a monk. And he would do wild things like wake up at 3 a.m. and pray for hours. He would starve himself. He would beat himself. He would sleep outside in the cold. He would inflict pain on his body because he thought, man, I don't know what's going to make me right in the eyes of God, but this has to help. He was confused. And ironically, tragically, the more he thought he was following God, well, the further he felt from him. And the more he sought his love, the more fear he ended up with. You know, there used to be uh, hours and hours that Luther would sit in confession, pouring out his sin to a, to a mentor, a friend. Well, this man, Johann von Staupitz, he was the head monk of the monastery and a mentor of Luther's. And he would pour his heart out to him, thinking, hoping, praying that if he confessed every last one of his sins, all weight would be lifted off his shoulders. But there was times where he would spend up to six hours telling von Staupitz about his sins and Luther never felt better. Thankfully, this man intervened. Von Staupitz looked at Luther and he said, this young monk's going to kill himself if, if we don't take his focus off himself. And so he hooked him up with a job. He hooked him up with a job teaching about the Bible at a local community college, the University of Wittenberg. And it was there that Luther's world would be shaken. It's there that Luther would learn the truths that would go on to upend the world. See, while he was teaching about the Bible at the University of Wittenberg, well, something happened to Luther that had never happened before. He was forced to focus on Scripture. He was forced to focus on somebody or something else besides himself. And what Luther read over and over and over again, and page after page after page, was that it is about Christ. It's about Christ's cross, and it's about Christ's work, not Luther's. It's about him crucified and risen for you, not you for God that equals your salvation. That's what Luther found out. Luther found out it is about Christ alone. It is about grace alone, God's undeserved love. It's about faith alone that equates in my eternal salvation. It's not about my work. You know, years later, Luther said this about Staupitz. He said, if it had not been for Johann von Staupitz, I would have burned in hell. And in a way, Luther was right. Because you see, what this man did in a humanly personal way for Luther is what the Holy Spirit does in a spiritually personal way. Well, for Luther, for you, and for me. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he personally points us to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he does, and that's what we need him to do. Listen to me, on our own, we are bent in on ourselves. We are focused on our own holiness projects, which is me. On our own, we just want to dance in the dark and do our own thing, and we wonder why we keep stumbling on our own self, on our own two left feet. But in enters the Holy Spirit, who flips on the light and points out what we did not see. He points out what we sang before. He said that 
I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from night. But Spirit, you made me see. You made me see Jesus. You made me see the answer to whether or not there is a God in this world and what he thinks about me. You made me see that in him I have an identity. I am chosen. I am holy. And my purpose? You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. What's your purpose? You've been called out of the darkness into the wonderful light to declare the praises of him who died for you. You want to know about suffering? You want to know about pain in this world? Holy Spirit says, look, let these words from the Psalms wipe over you. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and he's my portion forever. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's a person who happens to be your God. What does he do? He's someone who points you personally to the work of Jesus Christ. But here's our third question. Our final question. How does the Holy Spirit do that? Would you look with me at chapter 16 of John's gospel? We're going to read verses 12 through 15. Jesus is speaking to his disciples still, and he says this. He says, I have much more to say to you, much more than you can now bear. But when he comes, the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the gospel of our God. Perhaps one of the most misunderstood, misconstrued ideas about the Holy Spirit is how he works. And it happens because we don't really always think about who he is. Oftentimes we think of him about as just a dove or maybe a force or a wind or a spirit or a fire and flame. And so we get this idea that the Holy Spirit is wildly spontaneous. We get this idea that the Holy Spirit is someone that we never know when he's going to show up and where he's going to show up. And when he does, he's going to make everything get wild and crazy. Jesus gives us a, a little bit of a different picture here. He gives us a picture of the Holy Spirit and what he does and how he does it. It's a little bit more, well, reserved. Maybe even a little more constricted. He says this. He says, all that he will speak, all he will tell you, he'll only tell you what comes from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. you know, oftentimes, when we think about being more spirit-filled, being more spiritual, we look where? Well, we climb the mountaintops in life and we, and we think about where we can find a whisper or the wind of the Holy Spirit. And if he's not there, we, we search and we find and we, we go looking for him where? in our hearts, and, and we look for the Holy Spirit to, to affect our feeling and our mood, right? But where is the Holy Spirit? 
He comes from the Father. He comes from Christ, the Word made flesh. And he tells him, I'm going to reveal the truth to you. What's the truth? In the very next chapter, Jesus tells us, he says, praying to the God, the triune God, he says, sanctify my disciples by the truth. Your word is truth. Look, do you want to be more faith-filled, more spirit-filled? I'm assuming you all do because you're here this morning. Don't go looking for the spirit in your feelings. Don't go looking for the spirit in the wind or a whisper. You want to know where to find him? The Holy Spirit's in the word of God. That's where he's revealed himself and that's where he reveals himself to you. How does he work? The Holy Spirit works by speaking personally to you through the word. Romans chapter 10, the apostle Paul is speaking just two chapters after the verses we read earlier. And he says, you want to know how to get faith? You want to know how to get the spirit? He says, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. That's where the spirit's found. As I close up today, you're like, probably, Matt, that's, that's kind of a bummer of a note to end on. You know, I was looking for some passion. I was looking for the fire. I was looking for the flame to make me more faith-filled, more spirit-filled. Brothers, sisters, I would say this to you. Knowing the Holy Spirit, knowing who he is and, and what he does, well, it's what made Luther the baddest dude of his day. That's bad meaning good, not bad meaning bad. See, in 1521, Luther stood at that imperial meeting. He stood before the Holy Roman Emperor. He stood before the most significant people in all the church. And they said, Luther, take it back. Recant. Take back the things you said. Take back how you said it's just about Christ and him alone. Take back what you said about going to scripture before going to the traditions of the church. Take back what you said about faith and grace. And Luther stood there and he knew what was at stake. He knew he could be at the stake. He knew many men before him burned at the stake because of the challenge they issued to the church. And maybe you know what he says. It has all the makings for an epic featured film. Luther standing before the Holy Roman Emperor. He's standing before the Pope's representatives. And what does he say? says, here I stand. I can do no other. I'm going to give you one more buzzkill this morning. Those words, that rebel cry of here I stand, it's not even the most significant words that Luther gave in his speech. I want you to check out the speech. I want you to listen to it and see if you can catch what it is that gives him the reason for standing where he stood, what it is that gives you and I the reason for standing the way we do. What it is that gives this church the ability to stand where it does. Check it out. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason 
and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not. Recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. He said, my conscience is captive to the scriptures. He says, my conscience is bound by the scriptures. Unless I am convinced by the scriptures, I can't take back what I said about Christ alone being the source of my salvation. I can't take back what I said about God's grace and his faith. Because my heart, my conscience captive to scriptures. Martin Luther, he knew his advocate. He knew his guide. He knew his counselor. He knew the Holy Spirit. That's why he stood where he did. And that's why you can stand where you do. In the coming days, in the coming weeks, I hope that you'll remember the Reformation on October 31st. I hope you'll remember that as you get dressed up and maybe get some candy, that the Holy Spirit, well, he put on a mask. He put on the mask that looks like Martin Luther, and he gave out a treat sweeter than some Reese's peanut butter cups. Get out the message of the gospel. How do you explain what took place? How do you explain why this unheralded monk became the most powerful man in all of Europe? Well, I like how the reformer John Knox put it. He said, here is the reformation. It's God giving the Holy Spirit to ordinary men and women through ordinary means like the Bible and achieving extraordinary results. Know why you stand. Know where you stand. Know the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.